Section 34 of Claimants to Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avaii in July 2012. Claimants to Royalty by John H. Ingram. The False Dauphins in France. Hébert. Hitherto the claimants to the dignities and name of the deceased Dauphin were persons of low origin, and with little or no pretensions to education. But the next pretender to be introduced was of aristocratic appearance, talented, and furnished with a plausible story to account for his past life. His first appearance before the public as a claimant, so far as history is cognizant of his adventures, was on the 12th of April, 1818, when a young man was arrested by the Austrian police, near Mantua, for styling himself Louis-Charles de Bourbon. He declared himself to be French, and said that he was travelling for his education, the truth or falsity of which assertions did not trouble the police, but the surname of de Bourbon did, and they demanded an explanation the arrested traveller declined to respond to their interrogations, but desired that a communication which he had addressed à sa majesté impériale seule should be forwarded to the emperor. From this communication and other documents found in the prisoner's possession, it was discovered that he claimed to be Louis-Charles de Bourbon, Duke of Normandy, and the legitimate heir to the crown of France. This illustrious captive was sent to Milan and, without undergoing the formality of a trial, was promptly incarcerated. His story, as fully detailed in the Mémoire du Duc de Normandie, Fil de Louis XVI, écrit et publié par lui-même at Paris in 1831 and subsequently republished with modifications and additions in 1850, is of a most interesting character and is evidently as veracious as most of those issued by his contemporary rival claimants. According to the Milan prisoner, whose memory, unlike that of most of the pretenders to the Dauphin's name, was clear as to the miseries he had endured during captivity in the temple, after the death of Marie Antoinette, the wife of his jailer Simon consented to aid his escape, having been bought by the gold of the Duke de Condé, who had sent two faithful emissaries, the Count de Frotte and Aujardiat, a pretended physician, to Paris in hopes of rescuing the royal child. The name of Aujardiat, it is as well to remark, notwithstanding the important part he was called upon to play in this drama, has entirely escaped the researches of all historians contemporary or recent, and appears only in the pages of this remarkable narrative. This pretended physician, having purchased the cooperation of Madame Simon, and secured for himself, by unrecounted means, the post of medical adviser to the Dauphin, counselled the invalid prince should be permitted a little exercise, and commended a wooden horse for that purpose. The prison officials, who were in league with Aujardiat and ceded everything to Madame Simon, consented to the proposed new treatment being tried. The pretended physician, therefore, had a wooden horse manufactured, large enough to contain a child of the Dauphin's size. 
simon who was annoyed at having to resign his functions and disgusted at not being awarded any indemnity was speedily talked over by his wife to aid the escape of the prince or at all events consented not to offer any obstacle to his evasion the date fixed for the attempted escape was the nineteenth of january seventeen ninety four on which day simon had to resign his guardianship everything being prepared and simon gone to take a parting glass with the prison officials his wife according to her daily custom conducted the little prince to a lower room in a few moments ojardia arrived with the horse designed for the dauphin's exercise this new toy really contained in his interior a child of about the same height as the prince but dumb and suffering from a scrofulous complaint this unfortunate boy who had been attired in clothing similar to the dauphin's had partaken of a strong narcotic and was consequently in a profound slumber the exercise horse was conspicuously displayed before the prison officials who never having read of the stratagem by which troy was taken or their vigilance having been lulled by the pretended doctor's gold did not find it necessary to inspect it too minutely no sooner was ojardia left alone with the dauphin than he extricated the sleeping mute from his prison place and deposited him on the chair recently occupied by the prince rapidly explaining to little louis what his purpose was he rolled him up in a bundle of linen madame simon had prepared for departure and proposed to that good lady who was superintending the dismantling of her rooms that he should help her downstairs with the said bundle the jailer's wife feigned that she could not allow the doctor to do anything of the kind nevertheless permitted him to carry off the precious burden whilst she took occasion to inveigh potentially against the nonchalance of some man who would let a poor woman work herself to death without stirring a finger to help her meanwhile ojardia accompanied by simon descended with the bundle and deposited it on the cart waiting to carry off the goods of the ex-jailer and which was immediately driven off on the same day that the dauphin according to the milan prisoner's account had been rescued from the temple simon in vacating his post handed over the substituted child to the commissioners delegated by the commune to replace the ex-jailer the child was still in a deep sleep and the commissioners had no motive for awakening it as they had no suspicion as to its identity they listened to simon's declaration and certified on his affidavit that the young capet had been remitted to them in good health such was the story given by this claimant to account for his escape from the temple but such is the unfortunate habit of these pretenders in a subsequent account he materially altered the narrative and instead of being taken away in a bundle of linen averred that he had been removed in the toy-horse itself which simon's wife made ojardia carry downstairs again after he had effected the exchange of children notwithstanding the remonstrance of some of the officials under the pretext that she would not have it brought into the room without her husband's consent and he when appealed to refused to allow of its being introduced resuming the story as given in the memoir 
we read that when the dauphin was removed from his very confined place of imprisonment he was cleansed purified from the unpleasantness of his temple captivity and then put to bed in the evening he was aroused removed and placed in another artificial horse but this time it was of life size in the interior of this animal which in the company of two real horses was harnessed to a cart filled with straw were placed every convenience and comfort for the rescued prince this horse was covered with real skin and in every respect made to imitate a living animal so that the officers appointed to inspect all passing vehicles were in no way suspectful of the deception and permitted the conveyance and its precious freight to pass without hindrance so that the little duke of normandy after all his troubles and mishaps arrived safely in belgium and was delivered into the hands of the prince de conde unfortunately the conde instead of at once proclaiming the rescue of his youthful king kept the whole affair mysteriously private and secretly sent the boy to general kleber of all persons in the world the revolutionary general accepted the strange trust reposed in him by his opponent and passing off the scion of royalty as his nephew monsieur louis took him to egypt with him bonaparte was strangely disquieted at the sight of this youth in whom he foresaw a rival but the prince was once more carried away and confided to the care of another republican general Desay this officer made the royal shuttlecock his aide-de-camp and took him with him to italy after the battle of marengo the dauphin revisited france and instead of seeking any of his family's adherents confided his secret to lucien bonaparte and to fouché napoleon's minister of the police certainly an eccentric youth and one whom it was a great waste of time to have rescued from the temple precincts fouché introduced the young prince to josephine and the empress at once recognized him from the scar below the right eye which simon had caused with the serviette unfortunately for his peace in france the young man took part in moron's conspiracy and pichegru's paper having revealed to napoleon the fact that desay's aide-de-camp was none other than the duke of normandy the youthful conspirator had to fly and like most of his rivals for the title of dauphin took refuge in the united states the adventures of this claimant in the new world are too marvellous for our pages and as he prudently suppressed the account of them in the second issue of his memoirs it is not necessary to allude to them any further in eighteen fifteen according to his story he returned to france determined to reclaim his rights his former protector the prince de conde at once recognized him in private and introduced him by means of a curious stratagem to his sister the duchesse d'angouleme the princess however regarding the dauphin as the enemy of her family because of the terrible avowals which simon had wrung from him in the temple refused to have anything to do with him flying from this cruel reception the repulsed brother so he averred had travelled through many foreign lands including england when happening to visit italy he was arrested and thrown into prison in the way already narrated thanks to silvio pellico's charming prison records 
this pretender's stories can be continued, and in a more truthful fashion. In the same prison of Sainte Marguerite, where the Italian author was confined, was also held in durance vile the soi-disant Duke of Normandy. The two captives became acquainted, and the Frenchman, by this time probably grown a half-believer in his own imposture, declaimed so strongly against his uncle, Louis XVIII, the usurper of his rights, that Pellico appears to have been partly converted, whilst the jailers were quite convinced of the authenticity of the prisoner's claims. These guardians of the cells had seen so many changes of fortune during the last few years, that it appeared to them by no means improbable that one day their royal captive might leave his prison for a throne. Having this belief in view, they granted the pretender everything available, save freedom. In 1825 the Austrians, deeming doubtless his royal highness had had sufficient time to disabuse himself of his belief, released him after a captivity of more than six years and a half. The pretender took himself off to Switzerland, where he made some dupes, and in 1826 re-entered France. Grown prudent, however, he concealed his royalty under the name of Hébert, and under that cognomen obtained employment in the prefecture of Rouen. As Colonel Gustave, he appeared in Paris in 1827, and in the following year reasserted his rights, as the following communication addressed to the Chamber of Peers shows. Luxembourg, 2nd of February, 1828. Noble Peers, Organs of Justice, it is to your exalted wisdom that the unfortunate Louis-Charles de Bourbon, Duke of Normandy, confides his interests. Saved as by a miracle from the hands of his ferocious assassins, and after having languished for several years in various countries of the globe, he addresses himself to your noble lordships. He does not reclaim the throne of his father, it belongs to the nation which alone possesses the right to dispose of it. He only demands from your justice an asylum for his head, which he cannot repose anywhere without peril, and in a country which more than thirty years of exile have not caused him to forget. The Duke of Normandy The only apparent result of this appeal was the proposition made by Baron Mounier to the chamber, that for the future no petition should be received of which the petitioner's signature had not been legally recognized, and which was not presented by a peer. Meanwhile his royal highness was carefully sought for in Belgium and Holland, although he was all the time concealed in Paris. He managed during this epoch to pick up a number of anecdotes and incidents pertaining to the captivity of the royal family in the temple, and by displaying the ever-useful cicatrice over his right eye, and the traces on his knees and wrists of the malady contracted during his slavery under Simon, was enabled to gather together a faithful band of believers, who assisted him to the full length of their purses. Among other items of testimony, he declared that he had visited Madame Simon on her deathbed at the hospital of incurables, where she did really die on the 10th of June, 1819, and that she instantly recognized him and wept tears of pity. What, however, he pointed to as the strongest proof of his royalty, 
was the fact he alleged that every one who could have testified to his identity had been suddenly put out of the way he carefully in fact utilized the names of such persons as he had been acquainted with during his life and whose decease had been in any way sudden or not fully explained as for instance beginning with the famous surgeon de Sceaux, to whose care the dauphin had been entrusted and who had expired suddenly on the fourth of june seventeen ninety five he intimated that he had been poisoned because he imprudently declined to accept the substituted dumb child as the veritable duke of normandy in a similar way he accounted for the deaths of several well-known personages whose lives he asserted had been sacrificed on his behalf he even went to the extent of asserting that louis the eighteenth knew well that he was the veritable dauphin and that when warmly expostulated with by his nephew the duke de berry for concealing the fact from the world had not only excused himself by saying do you not comprehend that his recognition has become impossible as it would render all the existing treaties invalid and imperil the general peace but had even added significantly take care of yourself berry and within a fortnight the berry fell beneath the attack of loubel these accounts of those who had suffered for their lawful king although they may have convinced his credulous dupes did not render it particularly safe for the claimant to put himself near the minions of the french police he therefore found it prudent to keep himself concealed and change his nom de guerre at intervals the revolution of eighteen thirty afforded him however a fair opportunity for the display of his talents no sooner was a provisional government established than the claimant now concealing his royalty under the title of the baron de richemont addressed a demand to it that his rights should be observed whilst he protested against the proclamation of the new king of the french as louis philippe was designated the pretender also published the following letter which was he averred a copy of one he had addressed to the duchess d'angouleme the time has now arrived madame when abjuring sentiments which nature and humanity alike disavow you should give to my case the explanation necessary for putting an end to the ills that have oppressed me for so many years i will not reproach you your position imposes a religious silence upon me but mine have you considered it if your heart is still able to understand the plaintive cry of outraged nature if more than thirty-six years of suffering and exile would appear to you sufficient punishment for the enormous crime of being your nearest relation if your hate is extinguished break this culpable silence since fortune once more puts you at the mercy of foreigners would it not be better to throw yourself into the arms of your unfortunate brother louis charles notwithstanding this appeal the princess did not seek out a persevering claimant although the police did and on the twenty ninth of august eighteen thirty three succeeded in arresting him he refused to give his name but the act of accusation styled him ethelbert louis hector alfred calling himself baron de richemont his real name however was supposed to be hebert 
as in all affairs of importance he had borne that although he had used a variety of others among the witnesses called was andrian who had been a fellow prisoner with the accused in italy lan now seventy-four who had been a personal attendant on the dauphin in the temple and who testified that he was well acquainted with the person of the little prince who had died in his arms although two strangers had been to his house to vainly try and persuade him that the child had been changed the duc de choiseul who when interrogated by the prisoner acknowledged that certain words ascribed to marie antoinette had been overheard by him the duc de caraman remembered that an intriguing individual named ojardia had brought to tyr a sickly child that for the moment passed for the dauphin whilst m remusat a medical man deposed that simon's widow who had died in a hospital in eighteen fifteen had told him that the dauphin was not dead on this slender fabric the soi-disant duke of normandy based his case and with much dignity and real or happily simulated emotion recounted the story the reader is already acquainted with at times his audience did not fail to manifest interest and sympathy in his recital when the prosecution had spoken and his advocate had presented the defence the claimant said with calm dignity the advocate-general has told you that i am not the son of louis the sixteenth does he tell you who i am i have formally requested him to do so but he preserves silence gentlemen you will appreciate this silence as also the cause which hinders us from producing our titles this is neither the place nor the time competent tribunals will have to decree what is needed in that respect you have been informed that inquiries have been made everywhere but the advocate-general is very careful not to let you know the result he is not able to his power does not extend so far as that because another power forbids it and what gentlemen would you think if with a man like me and at such a moment they had neglected to carry out their investigations in the places where i have sojourned and notably at milan no no gentlemen do not believe but that they have written everywhere and everywhere have obtained that which they asked for that which they dare not make known to you if i am in error it is in the best faith unfortunately i have been in this belief for about fifty years and i see well that i shall bear this error with me to the grave ultimately the court whilst acquitting hebert of roguery and conspiracy found him guilty of sedition and he was sentenced to twelve years of detention he listened to his sentence without manifesting any emotion and in retiring said he who does not know how to suffer is not worthy of the honour of persecution in eighteen thirty five hebert contrived to escape from prison in company with two other captives and succeeded in getting out of france for some years this pretender contented himself with urging his claims from abroad and with reissuing revised and enlarged editions of his memoirs still sustained by the credulity of his dupes but in eighteen forty eight protected by the general amnesty he returned to his native land and addressed the declaration of his rights to the national assembly 
this proclamation did not appear to excite any public attention any more than did his declaration of adhesion to the republic or the notification of that deed which he forwarded to the duchess d'angouleme on the twenty seventh of march eighteen forty nine this claimant in many respects the most noteworthy of those who aspired to the titles of the unfortunate dauphin died in eighteen fifty five in the little commune of Glaise, in the district of villefranche sur saone and was interred there on the tenth of august of that year End of The False Dauphins in France Hébert